It's the 17th of the 12th. I'm Arthur Falls, and this is Beyond Bitcoin. Nothing you hear on today's episode is investment advice. A few days ago, I was privileged to speak with Jeffrey Tucker, the man behind Liberty.me, executive editor of Laissez-Faire Books, distinguished fellow of the Foundation for Economic Education. The list goes on and on. Only fitting then that during this deep and comprehensive discussion, my recording software should crash, surreptitiously ignoring half an hour of the most thought-provoking discourse I've been lucky enough to engage in. But what remains is published here in full, and serves as a cutting-edge perspective on how developments in cryptocurrency are changing how we understand money, the world it inhabits, and also bow ties. While the lost content is a small tragedy, Jeffrey's prolific writings are a fantastic source of informed commentary, which I suggest everyone who is interested in the subjects discussed in today's episode should explore. thought it was really yep. intriguing. In particular, do you think you could compare Mises and Menger's views on how money first derives value? Yeah, so you want to take them, let's take them one, one at a time, because they are kind of different. Uh, they evolved, uh, maybe obviously Mises learned a lot from Menger, but M Menger really lays out the first clear modern explanation of where money comes from. Um, and his idea is that it's a gradual and evolutionary process that emerges out of regular trade in the real world. So as you move from barter to indirect exchange, you've, you've, there's a commodity that gradually emerges as being more valuable than all, all the other commodities. And it, it does so because it has particular properties that are associated with, with money. Uh, fungibility, meaning that you can, like one unit is just the same as any other unit. A certain durability so that it doesn't just die uh, and, f and fall, up, fall apart. Uh, divisibility is a hugely important thing. Uh, scarcity is also important. There's a lot of things that sort of, sort of, uh, you know, constitute these these various have these various features uh, throughout history, and you know throughout you know you've seen salt emerges, money seashells, beaver pelts, all these things. But the more a commodity approaches these kinds of features, the more likely it is to be chosen uh, for money, and the gradually over time, gold and silver become that. Uh, so Menger describes this this process as as essentially entrepreneurial. So. Uh, you have people trying out various monies to see if they work. And sometimes um, um, something can be money for a little while and then be demonetized, replaced by another money. Sometimes a money can be uh, used in a particular geographic area you know, for particular kinds of trades and not other kinds of trades. And this is, all this happens as, as, as a particular commodity develops sort of the, the property of money nests. So Menger didn't see it as either money or non-money. It was just something that was an, an evolving, emerging process to discover um, what money is. And eventually, as the process sort of runs itself through, uh, the range of applicability or usability of the currency uh, grows and becomes more generalized. But this is a long process. I think Menger uses figures like 10, 50, or 100 years uh, sometimes for something to emerge as a, as a dominant money. But nothing ever becomes money sort of on a permanent basis. 
So uh, the evolution essentially never stops. Entrepreneurs are always uh, busy finding other monies. And you know, you see this sort of Megarian process play itself out you know, all the time, really, in, in black markets. Uh, sometimes things will emerge as money. There was a few years ago where laundry detergent in Baltimore County in the U.S. became uh, money. And in, in prisons, you, there's always a big struggle for what money is going to be. Uh, I talked to a guy who was in, you know, spent spent a couple of years in jail, and I talked about the monetary economy in, in jails, and he said that ramen noodles, those little packages of dried um, uh, noodles, were, were, were money, you know, that people would, would collect them. So what distinguishes the money function, the way you, you deal with it, is that, that instead of acquiring the good for consumption purposes, you're specifically acquiring the good uh, in order to trade it for another good. So then it, then it obtains the, the monetary value that, that goes beyond its pure commodity value. It, it, it obtains a new form of utility. So, so the ramen noodle is not just valuable because you can make noodles out of it, because, but because it actually serves an additional uh, function in the human economy of being able to facilitate uh, trade. And money is important because it, it gets you beyond the bar barter stage. Barter is very inconvenient at some level. Um, because you have to have a, what's called a double coincidence of wants. I, I have to want your eggs and you have to want my plywood in order to make the, the transaction take place. But with money, we have a kind of an independent unit that we both can agree on and, and, and therefore uh, we're more likely to be able to figure out terms of, of agreement and you know, serve our needs better, essentially. Money also allows for accounting uh, so you have a, a, a unit that's outside of the pure body economy that now allows you to, to uh, uh, calculate pro profits and losses. That's extremely important. So all of this is in Menger, and he explains it in great detail in his 1871 book, I believe, The Principles of Economics. And it's, it's really a beautiful explanation. I went back to it when Bitcoin came along and tried to understand whether or not Bitcoin you know, really looks like a Mengerian sort of sort of thing, and um, I concluded that it, that it does. Like, people argue all the time, is Bitcoin money? I'm sure you've heard that argument, right? Of course, yeah. And so if you read Menger, what you discover is that it's money in some ways and, and not money uh, in, in other ways. So it's got moneyness about it, but it's an emergent money uh, that's neither just a direct commodity, for, the, for it's not a consumable commodity, but neither is it a, a universal uh, medium of exchange. So we're somewhere in between, and there's nothing wrong with that, and, and that's good. That sounds a little ambiguous, but you know, the world of economics is a, can be a little bit ambiguous. So that's that's Menger, and I and I think I think Bitcoiners who want to discover where Bitcoin comes from need need to go back to Menger, to understand how it is that it went from, from being just a a, a pure bundle of, of titled and commodified information bits, to actually acquiring money. Uh, because it has all the properties of money. I, I like to say, too, that, that Bitcoin has an advantage over every other money that, that, that people have ever discovered because it's weightless and takes up no space. So that makes it better than gold and better than silver, actually, because then if it's weightless, then uh, it's, it's almost cost-free to, to transport. You know, uh, There's a service cost associated with it, but the thing itself weighs, weighs nothing. And because it takes up no space whatsoever, then every individual can have an unlimited amount uh, 
um, and, and and just carry it around as a pure digital good. So you don't have to trust a third party to hold your, your gold for you, for example. That's that's gigantic. I mean, th those are additional money properties that Bitcoin has shown the world are advantageous that we didn't even know were advantageous until Bitcoin came along. Yeah, that's it's interesting you, you point out those unique qualities. And I guess it is that... Uh, the real key to Bitcoin's or to money's success is um, is that utility as a medium of exchange that sets it apart from other goods or, or commodities. And that really is the core of, of what makes Bitcoin. I mean, that's all Bitcoin's got really is that utility as a medium of exchange over other, uh, over other options. Yeah, I think you stated it exactly correctly, actually. Uh, because of the utility that it has in facilitating exchange, money obtains value. And this is, this is and I don't know if we're ready to move on to, to, me, uh, to Mises here. Oh, by all means. Uh, but uh, Mises added an additional point here. And he does it almost inadvertently in his 1912 book called The Theory of Money and Credit. So he's, he's kind of going through the Mengarian explanation. And it takes him like seven or maybe even eight chapters to get all the way through this explanation. Because it goes into much greater detail here. Um, and adds a little more rigor uh, to the, to the uh, story that, that Menger just made a, a kind of a conjectural history. Menger tri uh, Mises tries to put it in a pure hardcore theory. But now you get to chapter uh, chapter seven and chapter eight, and he's dealing with the problem of the monetarists and the people attached to the equation of exchange, and dealing with some critics that were around in 1912 that aren't around anymore, and uh, tackled the problem: where does money obtain its initial value? Not why is it valuable, which, I mean, that Menger sort of addressed that, but 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 how does it obtain its initial price? And that, that's an interesting uh, problem. And Menger was, uh, Mises, Mises was trying to address the circularity argument. Like money is valuable because it has utility. It has utility because it's valuable. I mean, you keep, you keep uh, explaining utility by, by price and price by utility, and you get into this endless circularity. And what Mises proposed is that the initial value of money emerges historically out of the barter value of, of money. So, for example, uh, the initial money price of gold would be derived from gold's uh, 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 price in terms of other goods and services on a pure barter market, so that people are obtaining gold for you know, industrial uses or uh, for jewelry or whatever. And, and whatever kind of barter value it has then gets absorbed into its uh, monetary value. And Mises asserts this, this theory, which he later on in his 1940 book um, calls the regression theorem, which is just a fancy word, really. He doesn't use that phrase in 1912. But, he, but he, he asserts this theory as a way of kind of proving that there's no other way that money can come about. In other words, uh, a money has to have a kind of pre-existing value in a, in, a, in, a, in a direct exchange economy or a barter economy in order for it to have any value in a monetary economy, in an indirect exchange economy. Now, th this is where Bitcoiners have gotten confused or Bethesians have gotten confused about Bitcoin because they're looking at Bitcoin and going, well, here's, here's a digital good that doesn't seem to have any value apart from its money use. This is why people are all the time saying things like, 
uh, Bitcoin's not based in anything. You know, how how can it be real? It's it's not it's not it's not it has no underlying value. It has no intrinsic value. They'll say. What they're really what this taps into an intuition that's that's kind of true. Um, what they're what they're saying is that if Bitcoin weren't a money, it wouldn't be anything. And that's a little weird, right? So, like, like gold, if it weren't a money, would still be gold, you know, um, or silver, same same sort of thing. Bitcoin, it alarms people to some extent because it, it reminds them of, of like fiat dollars in the sense that if if the dollar weren't a dollar, you know, that you couldn't do anything with it really. It would just be a piece of uh, flat linen paper. So. Um, so I was kind of because I'd written a, a, a before Bitcoin came along, I'd written so much about about the regression theorem and Mises's theory, and and I thought I had it all figured out that you you could simply could the market would not and could not create a money that wasn't rooted in some sort of prior exchange relationships, because otherwise there'd be no way to price out the initial value of the money once it became a money. It, was, it wouldn't be rooted in any kind of history. So Manker's theory makes sense according to Bitcoin, but Mises's you know, suggests a, a little bit of a challenge. And um, it took me, like personally, about 18 months to kind of like fully figure this out. And the missing piece here, and it's and it's the it's the key to understanding the how Mises' theory relates to Bitcoin, is to understand that Bitcoin is not just a currency, but it's also a, a payment system. It's a network. It lives on on the blockchain, and so the initial value of Bitcoin is derived from its utility uh, uh, as a uh, on the blockchain. And the blockchain itself, of course, is, is this enormously valuable service. It's not a valuable commodity. The way maybe gold or salt or or something like that is, but it's still, uh, but it's a service and it's an enormously valuable service because it, for the first time in history we now have a way to bundle up, title, commodify information bits and port them peer to peer around the world in a way that's non forgeable, non reproducible, um, where there's no double spending, where it's time stamped. I mean, all this stuff is is amazing, right? That's what the blockchain does. So, so I theorized in my mind, well, this must be the actual, basically the barter value of Bitcoin is rooted in its, its service provision of the, uh, that are provided by the blockchain, right? So that's, that was my sort of operating theory. And I thought in my mind, well, if that's true, we should be able to trace back the history of, of Bitcoin and see this happening. We should be able to see the blockchain in use before there was any posted price of Bitcoin itself. And the beautiful thing, of course, about, about the whole Bitcoin economy is that everything's documented. You can look at all the history. It's all open source, right? So I went back and checked it, right? So in my mind, I thought, okay, then if, this is, if my theory is right here, we should be able to look at a period of time in which the blockchain was constantly in use, but Bitcoin had zero value. You know, a period of, of testing, essentially, uh, going on. A period of discovery to make sure the network works. And, and sure enough, that's what you look at. When you look at, the, uh, look at the use of the blockchain after the Genesis block and before the first posted price, which was the first posted price emerges now October 5th, 2009. And the, the Genesis block was January 9th. Am I right about that? Something like that? 
So then you can actually look at the number of trades that were taking place. I mean, how often was the blockchain used over the course of those 10 months? And what you see is uh, there's, I, th I think I did the figures, just kind of back of the envelope looking at, at uh, activity on the blockchain. There were about 100 uses of the blockchain per day over the course of those, of those uh, 10 months. So what was going on? What, what were people doing on the blockchain before Bitcoin had value? What were they using it for? I mean, they were, they were just testing to see if it really was able to overcome the Byzantine general's problem. Uh, they were able to try to figure out if the blockchain really worked as advertised. And then once it became really clear that you could you bundle up and commodify and title information, but transport them on geographically non-contiguous basis, peer-to-peer -peer in a way that was time-stamped, non-forgeable, non-reproducible, there's like, hey, this is freaking amazing, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so then at some point, then, then Bitcoin becomes a valuable commodity. And so October 5th, suddenly the first posted price emerges on some exchange somewhere, and it's about a 15th of a penny, right? But, but that's the first pricing of, of Bitcoin that we see. So it complies exactly with Menger's sort of story, and, and it also fits with Mises' story, but you have to kind of tweak Mises a little bit. This show was sponsored by bit38wallets.com, your one-stop shop for durable encrypted paper wallets. I recently received a bunch of these in the mail and I was really impressed. They're obviously durable but still flexible enough to put in a legacy wallet, almost like plastic notes for those from countries where they use them, but not quite as foldable. To be honest, I wouldn't have considered using a paper wallet over secure digital storage until these turned up. Good enough is good enough. But with the multiplying number of counterparty and mastercoin assets associated with Bitcoin private keys, it's more than just cash that many of us are securing. And the near-perfect security offered by BIP38 paper wallets saves me worrying about long-forgotten copies of wallet files left on old hard drives or whatever. BIP38 supports multiple currencies, so it's good to know that my Doge is as safe as my LTBC. Um, the clerics will walk up to you and the, of course they're always just impeccably dressed, right? It doesn't matter your station in life, some, somehow they're better than you already and you feel a sense of intimidation and, and uh, like you don't really belong and, and you have a sense that every suit hanging on the rack probably costs $6,000. You look at, you see a tie you like, you pick it up and it's like $350 and you, and you try not to reveal your shock in your face. You just go, mm -hmm, well, that's okay, you know. <laughs> But but you 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 have this you're sort of sweating it out and you, and you can't wait to get out of the store. So <clears throat> just one one secret to get to get these bastards back for for having made you feel shabby about yourself is just when the salesman walks up to you and says, "Sir, uh, is there anything I can help you with?" All you have to do is say, "Yes, I'm actually um, want to look at your collars." I'm I'm sorry, sir. We don't. The collars, yeah, you know, collars. Just to call. I'm not interested in shirts. I, I just, I just want to look at uh, collars. Well, I'm afraid we don't have those here. You, you mean you don't have uh, 
detachable collars here that are separate from the shirts at all? Like you don't even have one in this entire store? No, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. All of our collars, as far as I know, are entirely attached to our shirts. You go, hmm. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll, that'll cause him to wither. <laughs> but the next time I need a store clerk to wither, I'll be sure to ask about, uh, about detachable collars. I'm sure they will. I'm, I'm, really, I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah, you'll be legendary, right? You yeah, can't believe I've, what that guy just asked for. Tell the yeah, I think that would that would get around New Zealand pretty quick. If it yeah, <laughs> the manager will be like, "God, I, I don't think I've ever seen those even at the market. What the heck?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so fortunate to live in New Zealand. It's the greatest place in the world, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. You know, of course we take it for granted. So I just fell in love. I mean, I guess everybody does, right? You go to New Zealand. Um, there's a, a perception that it's a, a relatively free economy, you know, as compared to the U.S. And uh, you know, all the scenery looks like it was done in Hollywood with using CGI. Uh, there's a beautiful spirit of all the people, the way people handle time and sociability, and I mean, just everything's just it's just such a lovely place. And I tell you, there's something else that's a little bit funny about New Zealand because. The time is so strange. I mean, like, New Zealand runs, it's like a day ahead or something like that. Yeah. Like, uh, but it's, uh, it's uncertain. Like, so, so for, uh, say, for example, you know, like in the U.S. Uh, today, it's Wednesday morning. But for you, it's probably like Thursday night or something. I don't, I don't know how this works. 4 a.m. Thursday. Oh, Friday. Oh, 4 a.m. It's Friday. Okay, so this is Thursday morning, I guess. So it's 4 a.m. Friday for you. Um, yeah, so when you're in New Zealand, you have some illusory sense that you're actually, uh, you've got a day on the rest of the world. So because you're kind of living in the future, you really don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about much. Everything's right, you know. So you sort of detach yourself mentally from from the stream of events from the rest of the world. It's, it's quite liberating in some way. I know that this is an illusion. Like, there's no such thing as, it's not like you're living tomorrow and I'm living today. That's not uh, it, obviously. This is, there's only now. But still, the way, the way that the time works, it, it creates this, this sort of beautiful mental state when you're in New Zealand <clears throat> that um, you've, you've, got, you've got, still got a day, you know, on the, ahead of the rest of the world, you know, to complete, finish your work or whatever. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 exceedingly dangerous, you know. And at some level, um, you lose all sense of anxiety, and uh, you, you know, probably probably people live long lives in New Zealand because you know they don't have heart attacks and stuff like that. Probably I don't I don't know, but but I felt a, a tremendous sense of of liberation while I was there. Uh, I just I did, I could have just it, it's so many people I ran into in New Zealand. Said that uh, they. I said, "When did you come?" And they said, "Well, it was about ten years ago. I came for like a trip, and I just never left." <laughs> <laughs> That's really common. It's it's pretty funny. I really had that sense, and 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 then uh, Fran, you know, while I was there, he has this really beautiful house, you know, that we were hanging around in and stuff like that, and it had like five bedrooms or something. And he said to me, "Look, uh, you're more than welcome to stay. Uh, you can stay for for a month, really. It's fine by me." And I briefly, like, toyed with the idea. You know, I just thought, wow, what if I didn't hail a cab tomorrow morning? 
to go to the airport. What if I just stuck around? You know, and I was I was wildly tempted by this. And the only thing that really stopped it was that well, the, first of all, the fact that I had to be back. But beyond that, uh, the prices of international tickets are so exorbitant. I thought you know that this would this would end up costing me a tremendous amount of money. <clears throat> but it, it's just so tempting. You just don't want to leave. And I guess you know about my helicopter ride, which I paid with. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I paid. I bought a helicopter ride with Bitcoin, and that was the first time in New Zealand, and I was I was thrilled to to be part of that little expedition. Um, so that was ex exciting. Um, uh, to use Bitcoin overseas is a really interesting thing because I'm not entirely sure that I realized until that moment the implications of the fact that Bitcoin is a global currency. You know, it's not a national currency. It's, it's a universal, it's a global currency. So a helicopter ride in New Zealand and a helicopter ride in Houston, Texas, or in Anchorage, Alaska, whatever, um, uh, can be priced in terms of, of Bitcoin in a, in a way that's, that's thoroughly uh, consistent. And you technically don't need to, to, to deal with the problem of exchange rates anymore. And, and I, you, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of a, like an experiential person in a way. Like I didn't entirely realize the implications of this. Um, but when I went to pay, they gave me the uh, New Zealand dollar uh, Bitcoin exchange rate and priced it in terms of Bitcoin. And my, my first response was, well, um, okay, how does this work in terms of dollars, right? So I'm looking at my wallet and I wanted to kind of price that out in terms of dollars. And I thought I'd have to convert the helicopter ride price from New Zealand dollars to US dollars and then into Bitcoin. Do you, you follow what I mean? Yeah, like, I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then I suddenly, it just like it hit me like, wow, wait, I don't have to do that, actually. I only need to know the Bitcoin price and give you that am amount of Bitcoin. I don't even have to deal with uh, dollar exchange rates at all. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's eerie actually to use um, to use Bitcoin to pay for things I find, especially online. Um, just paying for things like web development or or something like that. Or, you know, like I had a logo designed recently and it's just so easy you know it just goes like that you can just bounty this little task off online and someone can pick it up and do it in an afternoon or whatever yeah. and uh well in the 19th century uh, god this interview is giving me so many things i want to write about but in the 19th century national currencies were just different names for the same thing and that same thing was gold um particularly late 19th century <clears throat> so, so we had a universal currency called gold. It's just that, but you know, the money substitutes basically were were created by the by uh, the individual nations, and they were given given different names. But but there were no real exchange rates between currencies. Um, there was only that sort of underlying. Uh, specie value of of gold itself. Well, now you know that was suspended basically in World War One, and we never really got back a decent uh, uh, universal system after that. And here we are in the twenty first century, and now we've got a kind of a new gold. So <clears throat> um, the Bitcoin becomes this this universal uh, currency, and the exchange rates into national monies are just different expressions of that same of that same underlying. Uh, commodity value uh, called Bitcoin. So it's it's very interesting the ways in which 
uh, I'm always intrigued by this, that, that Bitcoin is an, on one hand uh, like a restoration of, of a kind of an early modern currency, maybe from the Renaissance or the period of the Enlightenment, in the sense that it's, it's this universal fundamental thing that you trade peer-to-peer, -peer, combined with this, this outrageous you know, 21st century te technological invention. It's like you get you get like five hundred years of, of of history all crammed into into one little protocol, you know. <laughs> so lovely. Nine pages, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I'm I, I I don't think anybody's written about about this subject, and I might end up having to be the one to do it, unless there's somebody more competent that can do it to explain the implications of Bitcoin for international currency. Uh, trading because we faced a problem of of exchange rates now for going on 40 years ever since um, Nixon you know sort of finally ended closed the gold window and ended the period of, of, of Britain woods and so you know it's just inefficient for for all business all over the world to constantly deal with these floating exchange rates all, all the time. Uh, it, it interrupts uh, uh, business dealings and, and hobbles the division of labor. It makes it difficult for us to communicate and do business uh, abroad, really. We're used to it, but it's a tremendous cost. Uh, Bitcoin actually will take that away from us. So we can just, you know, we can all just deal in, in Bitcoin rather than having to go through these national currency uh, floating exchange rate problems. Well, that'll be the day. Man. Yeah. So the implications of that are really... Um, so there's something that was really interesting to think about. I mean, economists have not liked uh, floating exchange rates for a very long time, and I think there's a good reason not to. Uh, they, they, they're not a natural state. I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a national currency zone in, in, a, in a pure market environment. There, there really, there's no reason for Canada, uh, Mexico, U.S., New Zealand, and the U.K., and, and Europe and, uh, to all have separate currencies. It, it actually doesn't make any sense. We're, we're a global economy, we should all be using currencies that we all understand and shouldn't have these constant um, flo floating, floating between currencies. It is, it's actually an, an unsustainable and, and strange situation that's, that doesn't fit with history and, and it's not what efficient, good economies want to have happened. It's just a kind of an accident of history. And maybe, maybe in 50 years it won't exist. But the purpose is to give us central control over our economy though oh the purpose of national currencies yeah, yeah. i th i think that that that's that's basically what happened and the ability to deflate our way out of debt or to inflate our way out of debt yeah that's right the purpose of the monetary system is to serve the the nation state that's that's the primary purpose uh today that's the purpose that's not the original purpose of money but that's what it's been that's what it's used for today and it doesn't make any sense because because the we live in a, a, a radically globalized uh, economic structure uh, that being the case how do you see the relationship between uh between bitcoin and the state it's necessarily and structurally a part of the market, and you could say the same thing that that was true of gold in the 19th century, or uh, in the 17th century, for that matter. But, but governments took over the gold standard and used it for their own purposes and eventually destroyed it. Uh, it's a question of whether or not um, governments could do the same thing to Bitcoin. But I think that the protocol has sort of thought this through, the fact that it lives on a distributed network and is an open source protocol. 
uh, immunizes it to a great extent from from government control. Of course, they can regulate uh, the use of Bitcoin insofar as we're still relying on these kind of ongoing conversions between Bitcoin and the national currency. You know, the coming and going is what they're most interested in, and that's where they can really get their sink their teeth into the whole thing. Um, and they 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 can and they they will. But the more heavy-handed the regulations become, the more they incentivize people to leave um, the national currency market and enter into the Bitcoin space exclusively. Um, that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, the more they regulate it and the more they, they penalize and, and, and structurally try to control uh, the exchanges, uh, the more they just, you know, incentivize people to move into a, a, a pure Bitcoin uh, environment where I don't think that governments really have anything like the control over Bitcoin that they, that they currently have over the monetary system. I think they can have some uh, to some extent, but um, it's, it's incomparable, really, to the ways which governments took over gold and currently manage the national economies. You know, sometimes people say that, that, uh, that I'm the, the, the key theorist or the, the pusher of this idea that uh, Bitcoin will destroy the nation state, <clears throat> and I do believe that. I just don't think it's going to happen directly. I think it's going to happen gradually over time. Uh, the reason I say that is that uh, control of the money is really, really essential to Leviathan, as we've come to understand in the course of the 20th century. Once you take money out of the hands of the state, you're really uh, rolling back the system in, in a major and big way. I don't see Leviathan as being sustainable in, in light of a, a crypto world. Yeah, having that central control over, over money, which is that... Uh, the economic representation of your labor and and your effort and and your wealth you know and your influence on the world if you bottleneck that you know to this uh you know if you create this bottleneck of the state which has um which has central control over that representation um you really do give them total control you really do you know the old cliche is that money is half of every transaction and you know there's that's truth um, in what sense can you say you live in a real capitalistic market economy where half of every transaction is controlled by the state? And, and it's direct control. I mean, it's the state manufactures the money, they produce the money, they're regulating the use of money, uh, they ultimately control its value through its uh, policies of, of inflation. It really is a kind of a socialistically provided good, uh, or really... Um, I don't know if socialism is the right word, but it's a, a kind of nationalization that's, that's taken place over the course of the 20th century. Um, uh, so liberating money from that is, uh, you know, there's profound implications for, for politics, for economics, for culture and society, really. Uh, the cultural point is a very interesting one because we're so used to money losing value all the time. Um, Generally, I think in the Bitcoin world, we can expect uh, the value of Bitcoin to uh, increase relative to goods and services. So its purchasing power will, will tend to be always intensified and growing over time rather than falling. And that has really imp interesting implications for how we approach our economic lives. People are very inclined to want to save Bitcoin rather than spend it, actually, uh, because of the anticipation that it's going to be more valuable in the future than it is in the present. And that changes our, 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 our decisions. You know, it changes our relationship to the material world. A lot of the, 
the sort of materialism of our times has been subsidized by this perception of an inflationary currency. Like it's better to have a house and a car and fill their, your house with a lot of stuff and, and spend your money than it is to, to hold on to money and to save it because you just can't make a lot of money when you save it. Your, your dollars can be worth less in the future than it is today. So it, it disincentivizes saving and subsidizing, subsidizes a kind of a consumerist materialist mentality. If we move into a Bitcoin world, we're going to see that whole thing reversed. People are going to reassess the value of their physical property and uh, uh, rethink the value of, of savings. So it's, it's going to kind of, and that in turn will lead to a greater degree of capital accumulation, which, which subsidizes uh, development and, and general prosperity down the line. So the implications of that are actually really dramatic for, for culture and, a, and economy and then, and then, of course, for politics. Uh, it, we, I, it sometimes when I think about the implications of all this stuff, it, I'm just, it, it blows my mind, really. It feels like the, uh, like the kind of the, the harbinger of a new age. Yeah, I think, I think it does. And, and we're all going to have to wait and, wait and see um, what, the, what the effects of this is going to be. But I, th I think essentially we've underestimated the damage that government-based fiat central banking has, has done to the world. And I think we, we uh, also underestimate the implications of uh, cryptocurrency and how it's going to shape our lives in the, in the future. Well, on that note... I've uh, I've got to go back to bed. <laughs> okay, thank you for getting up at four a.m. You're very sweet uh, to, to get up and conduct this interview with me. I've really really enjoyed it, and I look forward to to sending it out. If anybody wants to come in anywhere and see my work, I write uh, almost every day at Liberty.me, which is my kind of social and publishing uh, platform. Uh, that uh, I would encourage all the listeners to join. It's I think we're running a special right now for five dollars a month, and you can get in, and it's a, it's a wonderful place to hang out and talk to a lot of crypto uh, people, and it's a kind of a global liberty-minded uh, community. And and also um, I also work for the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, and I have a lot of my writings up there, and and I'm happy for people to go visit that that beautiful institution. All right, actually I've uh, I. I've used Mises.org a lot. That's uh, that's one of my primary resources when it comes to um, anything that goes beyond uh, beyond white papers and uh, and forums. Sure. Well, I spent you know uh, fifteen years uploading uh, books and primary uh, st stuff there, readers, uh, readings, and all sorts of things. So um, that's a extremely valuable resource uh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. Thank you so much. And that's us. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the great conversation. Bit38wallets.com for your sponsorship and also ceases for the music. For the Let's Talk Bitcoin community, today's magic word is Austrian. That's A-U-S-T-R-I-A-N. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week or the week after. <laughs> <laughs>